Revolution I can't get no call to action But I try, and I try, and I try Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp and I'm Giles Edwards, co-founder and MD. Today, I've caught Will Humphrey, problem solver, pub quizzer, and one of the industry's sharpest thinkers. Will is currently strategy director at Wonderman Thompson. He's created brilliant work across agencies of all shapes and sizes for the likes of O2, Budweiser, NatWest, and Land Rover. Will is a huge advocate for mentoring young folk in the advertising and comms game, co-founding several initiatives such as the popular graduate blog, AdGrads, and a recent series of events called Getting In and Getting On. And somehow he still finds time to be a keen golfer, dad of two, and phallic-shaped snowman maker. Will says, knowing a little bit about a lot of things and applying that creatively is the greatest thing about our business. Welcome to the show, Will. Well, thank you very much. I must confess, uh, of all of those uh, achievements, the the phallic-shaped snowman was uh, the most recent of those. Uh, and uh, <laughs> yes, uh, let, let me tell you, if ever you want to uh, inspire a three-year-old boy with uh, what not to do with snowman making, you should take a leaf out of my book. <laughs> Wise words. Right, seven quick-fire questions, Will. Mac or PC? PC. London or Exeter? Oh, God. Uh, Exeter. I don't know what it is about Exeter. You lot are like a cult, Exeter uni folk, I've found. (laughs) Pub quiz or pub golf? Pub quiz. APG or PGA? APG. Rory Delap or Ryan Shawcross? Ryan Shawcross. Old Speckled Hen or London Pride? Old Speckled Hen. And finally... Daddy or chips? Sorry, Dad, it's got to be chips. <laughs> it's one of my favourite ads to that, and I've never, I've never asked it, but because of the old speckled hen link, I thought I would. So, Will, thank you for joining us. You're very welcome. To kick things off, we always like to celebrate the sometimes logical, often remarkable and ridiculous route our guests have taken in their career. So how did your journey begin? Because like me, you had a dad in Adland, I believe. Yeah, that's right. I basically was born. I was born into an, pretty much an advertising family. Well, even further back than that, uh, I suppose a bit of a sales and marketing family. So my father's father was a um, a salesman for Johnson and Johnson. Uh, so he ended up living all around the country. My my dad and his dad. So that's why I sound like a. Despite living in Surrey, I'm actually from the West Midlands, but I sound fairly neutrally neutrally accented. And growing up, uh, I was very much aware of advertising. So my father ran a a small agency, uh, firstly in, in in Gloucester and then latterly in Cheltenham. And he, before that, been a, a client case catalogue for those of you who uh, understand the hows, whys and wherefores before Argos and uh, the, the heyday of mail order catalogues. And he also was an, uh, an agency man and also worked in production as well. So he, he, he'd done pretty much most of the jobs in agency land, as well as being, interestingly, a, um, a planner supervisor, which in the days of... Um, sort of the 70s and 80s, where there really weren't that many planners uh, outside of London, uh, or at least not in this country. Uh, he did, he wrote briefs, he just sort of did the whole gamut of things. So uh, yes, no, that, that's how I uh, that's how I ended up knowing about advertising. And then how I actually got in myself, I mean, I knew about it, but then um, basically went to, realised that I always wanted to work in it, got a, got my degree from Exeter University, as you, you highlight in your, your, your intro, uh, in English, and basically applied to a lot of grad schemes. And was roundly rejected from almost all of them because I had no um, relevant uh, work experience. And basically, then spent the next next eighteen months coming to London, working either for free or for for, for peanuts, working uh, or rather doing work experience at agencies like Fallon, Delaney, Lund, Knox Warren, and a few other places. Got into the Saatchi and Saatchi Summer Scholarship as a very very bad account man. Was a very very bad account man, uh, and all the while was told, all the while was told that I was a planner. Didn't know what one of those was really, despite dad's job. I mean, you know, they didn't really exist in my my 
uh, my world. And um, after, again, a few false starts, was eventually, in a roundabout way, hired by a gentleman called Richard Huntington, who is now actually at Saatchi's as their chairman and CSO. But before then, he worked in an agency called United London, which... For those keen-eyed ad history buffs, it was the last incarnation of HHCL, a very famous ad agency in this country from the sort of 80s through to 90s through to sort of very early uh, early to mid-noughties. I was the last ever employee of HHCL, which uh, is a fairly ignominious claim to fame. Uh, and then I've worked since then, a variety of different agencies like uh, Lowe, they're now Mullen Lowe, uh, NPR for Edelman, Anomaly, RGA, Digitas, and now where I am now, which is at Wonderman Thompson, running the uh, the BT&E business, amongst other things. Nice, yeah. Well, Richard's a very smart man. I know that much about him. Oh, yes, he's terrifying. It's it's rather interesting because uh, he and I are now obviously other sides of the, d- the divide when it comes to d- uh, WPP and uh, and publicists. So it's so it's one of those things that he's still, I think, one of, I would say one of my mentors, but we have a bit of a, um, a Faustian pact to not talk about direct work because obviously um the walls have ears and you, you know uh, you want to keep it, the confidences between friends but no richard is a fantastic planner and uh, a very good very good industry friends for sure you, you mentioned um you were a bad account man at sarchi's can you tell me about there's a story with a binding machine isn't there <laughs> there's, there's a couple of stories in six weeks i um i i bear in mind i was new to london and uh, uh for those of your listeners who um who are London born and raised or South East born and raised, it's a bit faintly ridiculous. But I mean, I grew up in a village of 100 odd people. I'm very much a countryside, so that's why I think I answered Exeter versus London. You know, I'm used to, you know, the world perhaps not being quite so fast paced. And anyway, first sort of little dabble with London and Christ, I didn't know how the place was set out, never mind anything else. I could just about navigate my way around the centre with via tube and um, was given various graduate tasks like, you know, go to the big Asda in Clapham. Where's Clapham? What, you know, how do I get there? Should I get a cab? Uh, and and buy every skew of pa- of nappy. So you've got this 21-year-old buying every other, every brand of nappy, looking like some sort of weird sexual deviant, trying to get, <laughs> trying to take them all via tube uh, back to Charlotte Street. So I, I must have, uh, I must have looked a bit of a sight. Uh, so that was one. Uh, and the one you refer to, uh, yeah, I mean, I, um, I did not like, I'm not a practical man. I think a lot of planners aren't particularly practical people. And uh, I, yeah, I just, binding is one of those, was one of those skills. Binding documents was something I never really mastered. Much like a lot of basic practical skills, uh, it's something that eludes me to, to, to today, to be honest. So, um, yeah, uh, I mean, in all honesty as well, I think, and it's it's not reflected the agency now, but Saatchi's at that time, in all seriousness, were not going through a particularly happy patch. So they, they had a... A, a graduate scheme but it wasn't a particularly you know there was no guarantee you'd get hired so it, it was a bit of an unhappy place to, to to first to the extent to which actually when I came away I I wasn't sure whether I should work in advertising I thought to myself it's the Christmas morning thing you get in and you think is this for me is this what I want to do what about this and it and it wasn't uh, the agency as I say wasn't that happy and there are some unhappy people working within the place and you know you get that sense I think from agencies whether they're on an upswing or a downswing and it put me off to quite such a degree that I thought you know Christ am I, am I should I go into law should I pack it all in and you know went back home and uh, basically just sort of changed my tune when it comes to uh, when it came to advertising because I realized that frankly planning was fascinating and really really interesting. Yeah, well, there's a good lesson there in terms of the overall morale and the upswing or the downswing. Do you think then, so you, you said it took you about 18 months to get that that first gig via the six-week stint with Saatchi's. What about that journey you've just shared into advertising made you want to help others to do the same? Because you do so much work now with helping young folk into the industry. Oh, first of all, thank you very much. Um, it's very, very kind of you to say. I think... It was born, you know what, it was born of frustration because I, on the face of it, had all the advantages going for me. You know, I had a good degree. I knew what it was I was getting into, like most graduates or most people getting into the industry don't really know. So I thought to myself, this will be easy. And it wasn't. It was, you know, it was remarkably hard. And I think that's both, it was a good thing for me, you know, actually taught me that I wanted the thing. But I think... Uh, being being quite direct, advertising, particularly back then, was quite a walled garden. You know, uh, for some people, it was remarkably easy to get in because you either went to the right university, knew someone, or um, your mate's mate 
ran AMV is one of the, my friends from Exeter University. Like his his dad was actually, oh sorry, his 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 dad's best mate was Michael Balk. It's like you, you can't imagine a more. And I mean, I you know, though my dad worked in the business, I certainly didn't get a leg up from him other than knowledge. You couldn't imagine a more nepotistic and sort of slightly narrow-minded approach to hiring when I was getting in. And, you know, I'm pleased to say that that's improving because there is a bit of a talent crisis. But Christ almighty, uh, I, it just it just made me cross because I thought to myself, this shouldn't be that hard to get into. It's a trade. It's not a profession. It's something that, you know, you can you can master and you can learn. And Christ, I question whether you need, even need a degree to work in it, really. Uh, in terms of understanding how best to shape an idea uh, and 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 work effectively, but all of that said, I think it's just because I wanted to demystify what was such a uh, a walled garden even for me at that time. Yeah, and um, I mean, why do you think that that problem exists? Or even a better question would be: Does that have, does that problem still exist? That walled garden? Uh, to a to a to a lesser extent. I mean, it exists now in that. It, it this is I'm get very in that it's a socioeconomic problem now much more than it used to be. So just looking at the basic economics of it, when I first when I first got in my very first graduate job as a, a proper job anyway as a planner at, at, at uh, United, I was paid eighteen thousand pounds in two thousand and seven, early two thousand and seven, and I lived just off Old Street in a flat for uh, four of us in a three person place, paid about four hundred quid a month. That same flat now, even with more of you in it, would be double or one and a half times, certainly one and a half times what it would cost. You couldn't live in London with that graduate salary. And graduate salaries haven't really increased at the rate of inflation. Uh, And I know, Christ, I sound like like an armchair economist here, but it creates a massive problem and and does create that walled garden where I think I've said on Twitter a few times, advertising and marketing are in danger of becoming hobbies for rich people's children if we're not careful. And I want to do whatever it is in my power to try and, I suppose, de-risk some of the hires people have to make when it comes to who's competent, who could be good, etc. I've also thought long, and, I, and you know, you, you may well agree too that it's it's not it's not solely an issue of people getting into the career or into the trade, as, as you put it. It's equally about the effectiveness of the work that comes out of agencies, which I'm sure would benefit from a more diverse pool of talent. There's a lot of L- Londoners doing ads for Londoners. Oh well, I've got an example of that. So uh, when I worked on O2. We were involved with the launch of uh, 4G uh, and uh, being one of the few people who was from north of the uh, uh, the Watford Gap, I remember asking my colleagues to point to where Coventry was on a map. And I'm always reminded of the Simpsons quote, you know, uh, Homer says to Marge, uh, of course I know where Canada is. Anyone could miss it all tucked away down there. <laughs> Suffice to say, the, uh, the the responses to where Coventry were were a bit many and varied. And I was thinking to myself, Christ almighty, you might be able to tell me where a really good cocktail bar is in zone three, but you sure as shit can't tell me what the rest of the population are thinking and doing. So yeah, I, I definitely think that's a, you're, you're quite right. There's always been ads for ad people. Let's make no mistake about that. And there will always, there always will be a bit because, you know, small industry People want to show their friends and peers they're doing a good thing. But I think the thing for me is just that sense of uh, dislocation from what the what the broader public think and feel right down to, you know, Christ, I'm, I'm a born from a fairly uh, quasi, uh, a wet Tory household, now economically a little right, but mostly socially very left. Uh, and I voted to remain and uh, most of the country didn't. And it's it's things like that. You'll sort of think to yourself, well, am I, not wish to get too quasi-political, but w- why did they do this? What were the root causes of this? What was the, you know, trying to understand rather than shutting it all down and living in your very comfortable existence in advertising once you've you've gotten to a certain, certain level and uh, talking to people about, you know, which cocktail bar or, or where to eat eat dinner that, that at the end of that week good points um, and you've recently set up something called getting in and getting on so let's shine a light on that if we can can you tell us more about what that is and what you hope to achieve with it sure so like all good initiatives of mine i think <laughs> quasi quasi inadequate we'll see we'll see time will tell but i think that uh, it was it was basically born out of frustration again that i'd noticed a few people in the wider strategy world in my view, slightly taking advantage of people who didn't know any better. So, you know, juniors not knowing what was what and charging them for it. And I suppose I, I rail against that a bit, which is to say I, I the entry-level stuff shouldn't be charged for. Fair enough, you you know, a couple of years in, if your agency's going to pay for training, absolutely fine. But the, 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 I wanted to make sure that if you are someone who is in a, was in a situation like mine, so say, you know, a, a year of trying to get in and not really getting anywhere, or someone who's thinking about advertising as a career, I wanted to basically assemble a load of people who were 
practitioners, but not people like me or, you know, for advertising and advertising uh, parlance, I'm comfortably middle-aged now to get people who basically were practitioners who'd been in the business for between sort of uh, 18 months to, to 10 years and get them to tell their story about how they got in and get them to give advice about what they would do if they were doing it all over again. Because I think nothing is as beneficial as, as learned experience. And to your, diver- to your diversity point earlier, I think that the best, the most, the most effective way of recruiting diverse talent is by showing those people who've gotten in and done it themselves and talk candidly about the barriers that they faced. Because, you know, as a white, cisgender, very, you know, plummy sounding uh, Surreyite now, uh, there's a limit to what I can tell, I think. Also, it's now X number of years before I did it myself. Um, what I didn't want it to be was someone telling them how it was done in their day. It has to be reflective of current lived experience. Um, and uh, I'm aware I didn't actually explain exactly what it was. Uh, <laughs> classic plan. <laughs> what it is basically uh, is a uh, half-day uh, event. Uh, and I must be honest, for your listeners, I'm looking for someone to help help coordinate the next one. So if anyone's interested, please do get in touch who, uh, to, to line up a series of talks, free talks uh, on Zoom, half an hour each, each covering a different discipline or a different topic. One for half a day in the in the UK and one for half a day in sort of Pacific time. So in the US or Eastern Standard rather. And what it's meant to do is, you know, anyone could tune in. 300, 400 people all being well. We had about 200 odd last time to, to listen to advice for free, basically. That's what it is. Amazing. So how, if people are interested in either supporting or tuning in and getting that advice, how can they do that? Uh, there'll be another event, All Being Well, lockdown and childcare pending uh, in in March, uh, possibly pushed to April, depending on, on what's what. But to keep an eye on uh, getting in underscore getting on or look at my, my Twitter handle, Will underscore Humphrey. That will have more information as and when, but there's, there'll be an event right they can sign up to and we'll send links out. Amazing. Were there any gems of advice that you can share from your getting in and getting on event pre-Christmas? There were there are a couple. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think the nature of uh, of advice is uh, in terms of getting in. There's there's you know there are certain repetitious bits. I think the most interesting thing is was actually I think the getting on talks, which is to say, people talking quite candidly about the the negative bits which I, I have to be honest, not enough people do that. And it was very brave of a couple of the speakers to do that. So, you know, the agency gossip, the backbiting, the cliques that happen in agencies, the the way to combat that sort of stuff and how to stand out when you're an introvert, uh, you know, speak softly and carry a big stick and, and how best to, I suppose, play the system you find yourself in. So I found those particularly interesting. In terms of getting in, I mean, I must be honest, the story hasn't changed too much. It's still... Find some way of showcasing your thinking. Find some way of showcasing your conscientiousness and interest in advertising and marketing. And then basically write a few little case studies about what you would do given business problem X or Y that you read in the back of the paper. That is still the same, I think, for planning or account handling particularly. Yeah, it's, it's a tricky one to do to give advice. We often get questions in from from students, not necessarily students, but people of all ages shapes and sizes wanting to break into the industry and it's just so context specific it's difficult to give a one answer but there could be any number of ways in but I think um, funny enough you, you shared a Twitter uh, thread probably I think it's about 18 months ago maybe even more of advice to junior planners which I'll link to on this episode's listing where you listed about 10 pieces of advice that was really well received at the time and and Maybe that keeps cropping up. I don't know whether it's something you're 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 asked for even more. Oh yes, no. I mean, I must be honest. Um, to and I know you've had a number of speakers on the the the, uh, the show who've sort of who do mentor a number of people. I mean, I must be honest in terms of people asking me for advice. And this isn't trying to pat myself on the back. I, nothing could be further from the truth. I used to get the, you know hundreds of people with the same basic questions, and so I thought to myself, well. There's only so many times you can you can uh, uh, say a particular thing in a particular way. So I thought I'd just write that. It's um, yeah, it's a, it's the top of my um, it's the pin tweet at the top of my Twitter handle. I, I do think one thing to really think about that not enough people do. I think is think about all the reasons why someone wouldn't hire you. So you know that's something as basic as written English. That's something as basic as uh, clarity of thought. So think about the attributes that make up your that make up your the, the job you'd like to get into. And then think about what would stop someone from hiring you, whether it's a lack of industry knowledge or whether it's uh, a lack of being able to demonstrate lateral thinking and just try to cover those off. Because ultimately, 
what people in agencies want, considering the lack of time a lot of them have, is is to hire a sure thing, even at a junior level. So if you can prove that you've got some some evidence of that, even if it's mostly theoretical, it'll go a long, long, long way. Then thinking of it almost in terms of a circle. So think about, you know, right through from how you come across, you know, your shtick. You know, I mean, famously at a, an agency where uh, I won't name the agency, I was I remember getting to the last round and uh, not getting a job because I wasn't, and I quote, interesting enough. And it, the job went to someone who put on DJ nights. Uh, I still remember, and, and I remember thinking, feeling very hurt by that. If I'm honest, it still annoys me today. If, I'm, if truth be told, but but in the longest term, it was helpful because would you have wanted to work in an agency culture like that at that time? No, not really. So I wouldn't ever worry about cultural fit. But think about the sort of person you are, and the sort of work you admire, and the sort of agencies you you like so for some people that's more button down places that are more professional and others it's it's creative hot shops and think about the sort of things the sort of work they make and the sort of things they're interested in because it's never been easier to listen to you know chunterers like me or, or people creative directors in various places and they can there'll be tells with in their interviews about what they care about and what they're interested in and just basically try and reflect those as much as best you can Good advice. Advice is probably a nice sidestep into something you said with Mark Pollard on your Sweathead interview. If you lack empathy, quit advertising. What did you mean by that? What What is so important about empathy in advertising? I would say that, uh, and this is true of any job role, fundamental uh, in advertising at least, and to a lesser extent in marketing as well, although I do think you can probably be a procurement person without a great deal of empathy. Uh, sorry, procurement people. <laughs> For sure. Well, empathy in and of itself is about trying to trying to understand and and be able to uh, respond to and think and feel about how how someone else is thinking and feeling to literally try and put yourself in someone else's shoes and i suppose again if you go through the basic job roles i won't start with planning because that's too obvious in account management it's what my father called the cat handle antennae you know trying to understand why client x is feeling that way what are the things that that, that on their mind that they'll need a hand with that you as agency can help solve for them. So be able to empathize with your client's plight or situation. Be able to empathize with, uh, as a creative, the people you're creating work for. Uh, you know, the fact is they're not, you know, people who have views on the ta- best tapas bar in zone three. They're people who, you know, are trying to, uh, for most of them, at least particularly at the moment, trying to make ends meet and um, trying to hope that they have a, a job to hang on to or, um, or potentially lost the job. So having that level of empathy and understanding about what it is that, that motivates them and, and chances are it won't be an AR filter makes certain celebrities giant-sized. And I think the last bit, I suppose, is for planners. So, you know, pl- empathy is the greatest trait for planners because arguably it's the job role where you have to empathise with everyone to some extent. To empathise with your clients in terms of the commercial targets they have on their heads, to empathise with the customers, you know, who are of your or consumers of your, your various products or services. So, it's, it's about being, I know it's trite and it's old fashioned, but being the voice of the, the, the consumer. So what is it they care about? Why have they not bought this or done why? What is it they might be interested in? Um, there's that. And then also empathizing with your with the creatives you're, you're writing briefs for. So, you know, what is it about John or Joe or whomever that gets them out of bed, that makes them interested, that uh, that they respond to? You know, I've, I've worked with so many different types of creative that some of them, they want to know every single product feature in the world and others like the famous Walter Campbell, who I was lucky enough to work with at Anomaly, the man behind Guinness Surfers, he just basically wants to talk about conceptual art for a few hours. You know, like it's, <laughs> I, I joke a bit, but, you know, and being able to empathise and put yourself in a position where you have a bit of a sense about the motivations and drives of, amongst other people is the important trait. Because if you understand that, you'll be able to appeal to people and you'll be able to, to sell or be able to f- find new solutions to old problems. I think it's, yeah, I say again, if that goes then what you're doing is, I suppose, more more fish and chip paper, to be honest. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I think I think I think that goes for anyone working in the industry um entirely, as you said, not not solely planners or strategists or anyone anyone akin to that type of job spec. But you're you're mentioning about empathizing with with customers. I think I think the the, the basic market orientation is something that is so lacking. And in fact there's probably parallels albeit indirectly with your point about where's Coventry on a map the, the lack of empathy there understanding the customer understanding you know who they re- who they truly are yeah I, I mean I think you can get much richer and more interesting work by you know my uh, by not saying balls to what the category is doing but just you know spending a bit of trying to get away from our increasingly increasingly time sheet regulated 
project by project existence and trying to get some time away from uh, and almost doing the waste. I mean, I've got a thing on being my bonnet at the moment about the value of waste in our business. I know that's often a try, a, a, a old quote ascribed to John Wanamaker about, you know, I know half my advertising budget is wasted. The problem is I don't know which half. I think that the waste is the value. The waste is the time you spend in shops looking to see how people buy in category or writing for yourself to blog to get some thoughts on paper. That's what makes you better and more empathetic because you find yourself in a position that you have to think things through properly as opposed to filling up so many frameworks with verbs or whatever else, which is, you know, frankly, another slight cancer on our business. But <laughs> that's uh, that's perhaps that's perhaps a, a podcast in and of itself. <laughs> have you had to work at, at empathy as a skill do you think in your in your career to date uh yes i'd say so i think i think we're all we we you always have to a bit because i mean i suppose thinking about just a career trajectory for the for the beginning so going from a you know callow 18 year old west midlander who's from a, a village of a couple of hundred people and you know arguably had a lived experience much closer to the people i've tried to sell to now even right through to now where i'm you know i'm a uh, almost several decades on that. It's terrifying. Uh, and I live in a, you know, a, a, a reasonably nice house in, in a leafy part of Surrey. I, it'd be very easy to, to think I'm all right, Jack, and not kick the ladder out, but to, to, to settle, you know, to just sort of stop a bit. And don't get me wrong, there are certain things that do calcify as you get older. You physically can't do all the things you did when, say, you, even when you were a junior planner, and you have to rely on other people to help you which incidentally for a perfectionist for someone who likes owning their own work is quite a challenge. But, <laughs> but I would say that you rely on your, you, you rely on your team in some ways to keep you as empathetic, but yeah, I think it's a duty of care in our business to continue to empathize and continue to try and replenish that and to continue to try and fight, put yourself in situations which are not you bloody hard in a COVID environment, but it's, it's those who do, like, for example, the uncommon work for um, for B&Q, that is clearly born of understanding and insight and empathy with those people like myself who are, shouldn't be trusted with a with a drill. <laughs> with binding machines, let alone B&Q. Exactly, yeah. Certainly won't be any of those in my house. Uh, and, uh, you know, basically have a touch of the daddy pig about them. You know, can knock down walls. <laughs> Empathising that the sense of achievement for someone like me to do something basic at DIY versus knocking out a 50 slide PowerPoint presentation, it's, it's, it's monumental and based in and grounded in genuine empathy, understanding, and, and frank, frankly, in some respects, love of the audience, which, which you know, I, I think, to be frank, there probably isn't enough of at the moment. I think a lot of it might come with time as well. If you don't have that good grounding, I, I, I'll never forget Phil Barden talked about his early days and it was uh, within FMCG and he spent a lot of the time on the road visiting the factories, looking through the distribution channels, etc. And it gave him that, that that knowledge that I think everyone should have if, you know, product dependent and context dependent. I saw a great graph recently. I think, I think Murray Calder shared it a few days ago and it, and it plotted how much people know over time and plotted it against how much they think they know at different stages of their career and it was really it was really interesting I know it's not quite the, the same point but I do think over time you you need to develop that that empathy and I've, I've certainly shared this Bill Birnbach story before probably numerous times on the pod but he famously used to carry a card in his inside pocket that that simply said they might be right and if he ever found himself in a challenging conversation where he didn't instinctively agree with someone, he would glance at this card to kind of reset his mind and give him time to explore reasons why they might be right or they might think that they are right. And that that all helps develop empathy. Well, I, I also think, sorry, I was I was suffering from my greatest flaw at work, which is d- desperately rushing to the next uh, an, an adjacent point. It's a planner's curse, I think. It's also it's also, as you say, it's lived experience. So um you know, uh, there have been a number of things that happened to me over the course of, you know, from 18 to now, which have been personal life things that have massively shaped how you respond to crises or things. Chances are, in sort of the 18 years to, from then to now, you know, most people will have had one or two things that have been so seismic in their lives that it puts our, in some respects, silly little world into comparison, into, into, it brings it to sharp focus. Um, you know, and, I, and I've had one or two of those, uh, particularly in the last sort of five or six years. And uh, I think, you know, having children in some, to some extent helps there too. But I think that it, you also realise to the point about how little you know when you're, when, when you start and then how much you think you know, to right back to that beginner's mindset, as you know, as, as I think Phil was alluding to, 
I, I think it's also lived experience that refuels and replenishes your, your sense of empathy, uh, whether that is something that shocks you or, or stops your life from taking a, a path that you might have otherwise thought of. And, and just to bring it back, I think, to an earlier point that was made about advertising recruitment. Fact is, if birds of a feather flock together and people end up hiring in their own image, you get a lot of people who come from brilliant red brick universities, firsts in various subjects, who get in relatively easily because they know someone. And you've never had that challenge or that sense of empathy injected into you. You might be empathetic as a person, but you've never had that broader perspective hit home. And a little bit of failure or a little bit of striving for something or a little bit of life getting in the way does you so much good. Because, you know, I've been made redundant three times. I've also been agency of the year twice and won countless pitches. And the difference between those things is is a cigarette packet. And, and me at 25 did not know that. And me at 25 was an idiot. Uh, in many ways, uh, particularly if you worked with me at that time, I, I apologise in advance. <laughs> Very well said. So we've, we've got a belated apology for anyone who's worked with Will. <laughs> um, Will, something that I know you're keen to talk about, you articulate as the dark and light side in advertising and comms being dangerous. Can you explain what that means? Sure, of course. Um, so it sort of relates to the, the earlier points we were talking about. So a couple of, I suppose, career anecdotes, which will hopefully help here. So when I was working and I had a team under me on a, a fairly big piece of business, um, you know, I had about two or three people working into me and and not when I was 25, I was a little bit older than that. So uh, old enough to know better, but still uh, piss and vinegar was still at relatively high levels. Anyway. One of the things, and I think it's a bit of a trait from those people from the Midlands, is I, I have a cynical side, it's fair to say. That's fine because, you know, that's that's something that, that um, if it's not misused, can be very, very helpful. But what I realised over the course of, say, 18 months of, of mentoring these, these people who work to me and hiring them in, uh, that I'd infected people with this cynicism. And I didn't like that very much. I didn't like what that had meant, that my, not negativity, but my, I suppose, dark side had basically taken over, uh, uh, particularly in the case of one of them, it, it really had become quite an issue that it's so tempting to shit all over everything when you're a planner, because, you know, you, you, you think you know best and you have to, you've got the pressure on you to come up with a point of view. Uh, but it basically became quite self-destructive. So, so I suppose that that's the dark side I refer to, is that, that sort of unchecked cynicism that I certainly had to work hard at keeping an eye on, you know, a little bit goes a very long way. Uh, and I suppose the, the the flip side of that, which I've noticed more in recent years, is, uh, and uh, this is also as much of a pitfall, and we talked about this prior to this being recorded, but the perils of, of unchecked positivity. So advertising people fundamentally are optimists. You know, you've got to be optimistic. You're creating something from nothing. You're trying to uh, make a client do something brand new for the most part. And, and you, you know, you're, or you're trying to inject new life into a campaign to do with baked beans that's had six different iterations. None of them are quite work. You have to be optimistic to, to keep pushing on through. However, I think there's been a bit of a tendency, and I think social media perhaps has exacerbated this a bit, um, I'm not wishing to sound like too much like old man shouts at cloud, but I think there's 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 toxic positivity as well. You know that that sense that you can't disagree with someone, or you can't, or it just always has to be blatantly positive, or you can't listen to dissenting voices. I just it it's harmful because it just means you become you become you just listen to to people who back you all the time. And frankly, I don't want that. I don't want people who are cynics all the time. But I don't want these sort of weird rictus grinning weirdos who just you know cheerlead for you I'd, I'd hate the idea that there's i mean there is a will humphrey cheerleading squad i have to say uh uh you know hand in your pom-poms but but you know i, I just i just think there's there's a danger of of sort of culty groupthink either way and i and i i suppose particularly as a planner but moreover as a comms professional um or tradesman it's about trying to weigh up successes and failures and weigh up good times and bad times fairly even handedly. And it, I mean, it does take a bit of a career or a bit of a lifetime to do it properly and, and be that level of Zen. But if you catch yourself, I think the light side and the dark side is, is not the way. And I'm not going to do a Yoda voice, even though I was quite tempted just then. <laughs> so you mentioned about social media maybe exasperating the issue. The way I interpret that, I think there's some truth in that because social media almost forces people to become binary. It's either press the like button or don't. People don't embrace the grayscale, do they? It's it's there's so many false binaries, and our industry is full of them. 
Oh yeah, no, don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I I harped on about this a bit, which is you know not the death of nuance, but certainly the fading away of nuance into some smaller part of our business. The fact is, sometimes both things can be right. Sometimes you can be right in the short term and wrong in the long term. So I always come back to this example from my own work, which is um, uh, obviously I didn't work on any of the good work. You know, I just got to work at the tail end of the, the slightly less successful campaign. But I used to work on Stellar Artois, or certainly assist on it as a junior planner running TGI. So you know. In the, in the land of advertising, I worked on it and wrote the IP effectiveness paper. Uh, but basically, in 2001, so well before I got into the business, Stellar Artois uh, won the APA Grand Prix. Basically, the paper argued that you could have a premium positioning for reassuringly expensive. For those of you who don't know the ads, they're probably legendarily famous. And, and Lowe at that time was the best agency in London, bar none. You know, it had HSBC, it had OMO, it had had Orange, it had all the good, a lot of good work. Anyway, they argued that you could have this premium positioning of reassuringly expensive, but then you could also discount at supermarket. Uh, you know, so you could sell stuff at, you know, two slabs for a tenner, but you also could charge at that time, I don't know, £4.50 for a pint of the stuff on the on-trade. And basically, what in the short term, that was right. In the short term, that that won them an IPA Grand Prix. In the long term, it completely fucked their business when basically it was seen as wife beater and they basically eroded the, their uh, premium positioning. So they were just basically communicating a lie and the advertising was doing more harm than good. So in the end, they basically reviewed it out of low. It went to mother. I, I caught the end of that. I was at low and then it reviewed out. So, you know, I've got the Midas, the Jonah-esque touch. Uh, and my, <laughs> my years at low, I managed to make a car ban go bust inadvertently. Uh, sorry, Saab. Uh, and also a number of accounts reviewed away, but I was just doing the TGI honest gov. Um, so, um, <laughs> um, but but the point is valid, I suppose, which is to say, you can you can be right on two things. Uh, 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 you know, you can be right right in the short term and wrong in the long term, or you can both be right. But because you're trying to force everything down a 280 character wormhole, you just get a lot of very angry people. And I think, I mean, it's an Ian Leslie book. I'm quite keen to read about disagreement, which I've not read. But the art of disagreeing well, or the art of not just being a contrarian dickhead, is so missing. I mean, there used to be far greater levels of disagreement. Maybe it's just becoming more senior. I don't know. And people are frightened of you and don't want to. I mean, I'm a very scary man, as you can imagine. Um, uh, I work. Um, people just don't want to disagree as much. Whereas when I started, there were stand up, not rows, but, you know, heated meetings. And, and, and some of that, some of that heat and light, I think, probably has gone out of the business a bit. Which, don't get me wrong, if you're arguing over when a sponsored tweet should happen, I think it's quite right that it has. But, you know, I, I do miss a bit of the idea of two people, you know, arguing the toss over something and and have both being right in, the, in their own individual ways and, and disagreeing well and, and bringing that nuance to the forefront. I think that's the, you know, what's the mark of first rate intelligence, isn't it? It's being able to hold two opposing ideas in uh, in your head at the same time. And I feel that as an industry... Not that we've lost that, but I think there's a bit of a uh, uh, reluctance to entertain that these days, given time pressures and and budgetary pressures and things. But I think the more you're able to do that, the better, the more you'll stand out in your career. To be quite honest with you, yeah, I, that, that stellar example is wonderful. I, I love the um, significance of time scale as well, and I, I wish I really wish people would bear time scale in mind when they start talking about ROI. Mark Ritson will commonly say that the best ROI is, is spend nothing and just coast on the on the on the winds of your previous campaign well i mean the, the dirty little secret which you know most people in our business depending on their, their seniority will refuse to admit is everything we do pretty much is educated guessing how educated it is depends on the, the level of d- information and data you have but it's always a rearview mirror and none of us know with certainty whether it's right but you're an agent of change by working in an agency so our job is to try and use salesmanship and, and 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 data and thinking to to suggest that it might be right. But you know, you hear how the genesis of most uh, products and services in Christ, even in, in the digital uh, economy, there's a lot of bets until certain things pay off. So many apps, for example, were designed with other things in mind before they ended up where they're supposed to be. I mean, looking at businesses, it's things like Nokia or you know, an engineering company where mobile was two percent there. Their, uh, their revenue or how Bailey's was invented, which was, you know, literally focus grouped in a pub, knew a few suppliers. I mean, it's a fascinating story. I have to say, read that if you haven't. I'll see if I can dig out the link. But but all of it's guessing. 
And I suppose that also comes back to recruitment as well, which is to say, hire the people who are from the most, most the, the best and the brightest universities and sound a certain way, and you'll be more likely to sell those things through. And there's still a bit of a kernel of truth in that. I mean, it's why the, the British accent goes around the world uh, so successfully in planning, because we sound like we know what we're talking about. So, you know, I mean, Christ, I've probably now done myself out of 20 years of consultancy work. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, you're right. Well, funny enough, on the on the previous episode with JP Castley and I made that exact point, and I recall a blog by a I suppose he's quite divisive. I've always been a fan of Bob Hoffman uh, when it comes to contrarians, but he will say exactly the same thing that it's a very well informed, often educated guess. The trouble is when you've got snake oil salesmen out there selling guaranteed results. If you're a business owner with significant lack of marketing knowledge which is a fair position to be in why wouldn't you go with the guy that's guaranteeing you results and therein lies one of the biggest problems i think when you're when you're when you're pitching business but that might only be at a certain level oh no no i i, I think it's true of every level so i mean christ bring it back to my my father's agency i mean he was he was pitching to people who didn't know what a brand was never mind uh, how should we allocate best allocate our spend you know and i and i think that is very true it's 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 why i get it's why i get so frustrated at um you know the likes of say simon sinek's frameworks or or gary v's of this world where it's it's as you say it's it's uh, it's it's snake oil it's it's traveling salesman stuff it's it's a junior planner uh, circa 2004 turned into a framework and then sold around the world very charismatically. I'm a bit jealous because I obviously I'd love to do much less work and live off the proceeds of, of a few concentric circles. But uh, but at the same time, you know, it does us it is it, immeasurably hard. And given the ten years of, of CMOs, it's 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 increasingly difficult. However, I suppose the duty of care I have in my business and my world is basically trying to remind people as much as possible that it isn't linear. None of this is linear. You know what you know what it's not as simple as jam today jam tomorrow it's the, the creative process is messy the strategic process is often quite messy and then the way we do reporting and thinking and, and building upon things what's true and what's what's been driven by context which i know obviously jp is he's a much cleverer person man than i am i think he uh he'd probably go to town about emergent strategy which you know i must be honest I, I understand, but uh, uh, my simple my simple brain uh, needs to have a bit of a run up and a jump before I can get too too near that. <laughs> I hear you there. No, that's all good. That's all good. Yeah, um, I mentioned on the intro your lovely quote. I didn't I didn't perhaps do you credit because the, that's just the start of your quote. But you mentioned knowing a little bit about a lot of things is the greatest thing about our business, being able to apply that creatively. You've equally, I know, talk about your pub quiz knowledge as, as somewhat of a secret weapon. So are there, are there parallels there? And, and when and how did you get into into quizzing? Oh, well, okay. So so two things. One, it, uh, another good quote, which isn't mine, and uh, isn't even Faris Jacobs, but talent imitates genius deals. That is nicked from my father, uh, knowing a little bit about a lot of things. And I'm sure he nicked it from someone else. But but the, the, the thing for me there is the value in that really, just in terms of why that's valuable and why it relates to pub quizzes is if you're going to be, anyone who's ever done a pub quiz knows, it's not about deep knowledge about medieval history. You know, like, great, that might get you a question. Maybe you won on University Challenge, but you'll be fucking useless when it comes to the other 50-odd questions. And the same is true, I think, of planning. Yes, of course, you have to have deep knowledge about your client's business. And, you know, of course, you need to know a lot about a specific subject. But the value in what we bring to clients is an alternate perspective. The best way to get an alternate perspective is by bringing lessons from other categories, other things you've seen, other things you've learned, and bring it to bear on, I don't know, the, en- the energy sector or bringing the energy sectors, how they keep a hold of customers, bringing that to, to the telco world or, or, or vice versa. Knowing a little bit about a lot of things, I suppose, is, is basically just a way of acknowledging that you should bring a, try and bring a breadth of knowledge to any problem you face because you never quite know when that, sort of, that piece of knowledge will come in handy, much like a pub quiz. Um, that's why I, I, I think it's useful and valuable. And don't get me wrong, I, I think you can go too far. You can just literally be interested in too much ephemera. But I do think... Again, like the nuance point you made earlier, deep, deep knowledge, but then knowing a little bit about a lot of things and being able also, to be honest, much like revising for exams, be able to forget everything that you knew once knew about, uh, I don't know, in my case, voxel vans to then move on to another problem. I think it's also equally helpful and equally interesting. So basically this, this career you know, rewards divergent thinking in that respect. Have you got a specialist subject, though? Oh, Christ. That's a very good question. I used to. It used to be Simpsons, the Simpsons uh, seasons between like 1990, uh, 1995 to 
1998. That would probably be mine. <laughs> Christ knows I watched them enough, enough as a child. Now, probably it would be, uh, I imagine the golf swing I'd probably be reasonably good at. Or point, LucasArts point-and-click adventure games between 1989 to 1994. I reckon I'd be pretty good at those as well. So yeah, incident, incidentally, uh, and it's a related thing, I used to have a thing when it comes to hiring, when it came to hiring planners, that if a planner loved point-and-click adventure games, the chances are they'd be really good at planning. Because for those of you who don't know what they are, they're basically lateral thinking exercises. Uh, you know, insert chicken with rubber, uh, with pulley in the middle uh, to get across zip line. You know, like random things that you can apply that, you know, because the, the thing I will say is testing for lateral thinking in our, in planning at least, is very, very hard. It's not impossible, but I've met a lot of very talented people who are basically researchers who don't have a shred of lateral thinking in their body. And really, the true value in our in planning as a discipline is to be able to soak up lots of information and have interesting lateral thoughts off the back of it. That's the job. And that is born from and fueled by empathy around people. But if you can do that, it's not just about clarity. You know, one of the things I read on, on Twitter quite a bit is, you know, if you can be clarity alone is not enough. In, in many ways, you can have a long winded answer. But if it's got a lateral thought in it, you'll get far more success than someone who boils everything down to a perfect sentence that is very boring. <laughs> and um, one thing I didn't actually answer, sorry, just back to your earlier question. I was, I've always been reasonably good at pub quizzes, you know, on the MNC Saatchi pub quiz a few, uh, a few times. Uh, but actually, if I'm honest, my greatest shame is when I first started in advertising, my um, housemates were very, it were pretty good, you know, they're pretty solid. And because I, I, amongst the flat was the first with a proper sort of career job, you know, I worked quite late hours, you know, in that classic way that when you're 22, 23, you, you throw yourself into your work, etc. And I was not around for a lot of pub quizzes. And these blokes, basically, I was I was thought I was pretty good. But these guys ended up appearing on Eggheads and also appearing on Only Connect. And they won their Only Connect, uh, got through on Only Connect as well. So some fantastic quizzes I've, I've been had the privilege of knowing. I'm, I'm nothing next to them. So I went to, I decided just to double down on planning, to be honest with you. So uh, <laughs> Have you got a favourite random piece of um, quiz knowledge? Oh, Christ. Uh, okay, yeah. Um, which is the only player, it's a bit of a football trivia one as well, who's the only player to, to score a hat-trick in uh, internationally and all the main uh, English leagues uh, and conference? Oh, Christ. You know what? I actually know this. This came up a few weeks ago in something else, but it slips my mind. Shit. Uh, I'll give you a clue. He's Welsh. Ah. Uh, did he play for Reading? Ah. Uh... I don't know, actually. That that, that might, it might he might have done. Robson, no, Robson Carnot. It's 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 Robbie Earnshaw. Yeah, even older uh, Welsh uh, Welsh stock. So no, he he famously got a hat trick in all of the. I mean, don't get me wrong. He Welsh national team probably played Moldova or something like that, and he he got a hat trick. But yes, it was him. And uh, I mean, I just I collect random. The thing is, is again, I'll be backed into a corner, and then after this, I'll be like, "Oh, I should have told him about that or mentioned that." <laughs> well, funny enough, Jem Higgins, who was on uh, a few months ago, she shared her favourite, which was, "Do you know what they what the term used when an alpaca gives birth?" No, I don't. An unpacking. Amazing. Uh, well, on that to- on that note, uh, what you got, what's a collected noun of hippos? Oh, go on. A bloat. <laughs> <laughs> is that true? Yes, yes, it is. It's quite true. I, I thought about telling you about crows, but I thought figured you'd know that one. So yeah, no, I, that's uh, I love that sort of thing. My, my favourite collective noun is is for bankers, which is a, a wunch. Amazing. I, I I like a PowerPoint of planners or a confusion of planners. That works. Any anyone who's ever done the APG training network will know that you try and get more than two planners in a room, and you will end up with five different solutions to a thing. So uh, yeah. Um, I've got a couple of listener questions uh, for you, Will, and the first one is is pub quiz related. Sure, go for it. So asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger. Uh, But we've got two for you. Number one is Mike, who asks, I heard on your podcast episode with Mark Pollard that you're a keen pub quizzer. Firstly, what is your go-to pub quiz team name? And secondly, have you kept up the quizzing through lockdown? Good question. I uh, we're I was always the custard creams. I don't know why. I, I have a predilection for biscuits. We're always the custard creams. We're never quiz team or Aguilera or let's get quizzical or quiz of my face or any of the other tired ones you've heard. Uh, but yeah, there were always the custard creams. And in terms of quizzing, like everyone, it's been Zoom quizzes for me. To be honest with you, with with mates, I must confess, actually, I've been uh, one of my friends who's a 
uh, is a, a copywriter of, of note, John uh, John Aitchison, very talented copywriter. He his uh, his are famously very very difficult. I'm normally quite good on things like music rounds because I've if anyone's ever heard me sing knows I'm probably a bit tone deaf. But I could one of the weird special skill is I I can hear a couple of bars and roughly know what a song is if I heard it once before. And so music rounds I was always quite good at, but. That bugger uh, does it as um, he he enunciates the lyrics rather than does the melody. And it, honestly, I, I it, that's my my kryptonite. I've realised in quizzing, I can't deal with it. I'm I'm very bad. But yeah, the custard creams and, and yeah, Zoom quizzes. But I'm looking forward to. I have to be honest, going to a Rygate pub, which is where we've moved to, and having a beer and doing a quiz that'd be great fun. Gasp has a pub quiz team, but we're yet to enter any pub quizzes. We got carried away with the team name and um, team outfits. It's pathetic. <laughs> <laughs> Number two is from Celine. Celine asks, what is your single most valuable piece of advice for budding strategists trying to get into the industry? Oh, Christ, that's a proper question. That is a podcast in and of itself. Oh, this is going to sound really wanky. Uh, I'm sorry. I should probably have sat down and written out written out a proper response to it. I think I tell you what, it's 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 planned from within, and that's a Christ. That sounds as soon as I said that aloud, that sounds like some sort of it sounds like a Simon Sinek soundbite, doesn't it? <laughs> Fucking hell! Yeah, exactly. It's like yeah, keep reaching for that rainbow. No, it's it's um, it's a plan from within. The reason being, uh, re- uh, let me unpack that a little bit. Most often, you're not your target audience, and you you may never be. You know, when I was starting on my uh, in my uh, my career in in advertising, I I worked on Johnson's Baby, and I was uh, twenty two, no children, no idea about lots of the lots of the ins and the outs of of childbirth. Uh, so that was an eye opener, and I was the only uh, straight man on the on the team. I planning from within basically is you've got your own lived perspective about a brand, a category, a situation, and you should examine why you think that. Why do you think a certain way about a certain brand or a certain problem? And then if you know that and you can, like physician, heal thyself, look and have a bit of a think about why you think those things, that will help you in understanding why you're reacting that way, but also help you understand how a normal, and I use inverted commas here, if this was being recorded as video or you see me doing those terrible quotes, what a normal person thinks about uh, a, a category or thing, or if you're further into your career, why you're responding to it as an ad person. Because to stop ads for ad people, are you just responding to the, the kerning or the art direction, or are you responding to it as something that your mum or brother, dad, or sister might might respond to? And I, and I think, you know, also while giving this piece of advice, a, a, a better piece of advice has just cropped up. So classic planner, I'm going to give two. two. The other thing as well in terms of good pieces of advice for, for, for particularly for strategy, but I think it relates to all is spend a lot of time trying to uh, understand what a, what the problem is. A lot of time. The Einstein quote of, you know, if I had an hour to, to solve a problem, I'd spend the first 55 minutes to, uh, defining it. Not enough people spend enough time defining a problem. And that basically means you either get solutions that uh, solve the problem in front of them, but don't solve the deeper problem or things that are uh, at worst wrong. So I think my thing is, is, I go back to, and I use this example on Mark's, um, Mark Pollard's um, uh, podcast as well, but I remember giving, being given a piece of advice by a history teacher when I'd, I'd written an essay uh, as an A-level student. And he said to me, um, you're very good at telling me why people won the gold, but you're not very good at saying why someone who won silver only won silver or person who won bronze, why didn't they win silver or gold? Or what were the contextual factors? What, why? Explain the broader context to me, basically, that was that advice in a nutshell. And when you're trying to define a problem, look at it in a, in a uh, overall. So what is the broader context? Why might someone be thinking that? Why might someone be reacting in that particular way? What are the motivations behind that particular product, brand, service, or brand manager? You know, why is, why, and why is that PR headline in the news in that way? I mean, Christ, if you understand that, you can also understand the motivations behind uh, the agenda that your clients might have, or the Christ, even more simply than that, the agenda someone on Twitter might have when they're trying to promote something that they've done or something else along those lines. Everyone has a, a set of motivations rather than just one straightforward thing. So if you define the problem, you'll be better placed to to answer it. I would say that and planning from within are the two pieces of advice I would give. So the final part of the interview then, Will, is our four pertinent poses that we put to all of our guests. Starting with number one, what advice would you give to your younger self? I would probably say not try not to take it quite as seriously as you you have been, and try 
I'm going to basically contradict myself uh, from the last answer. Try and get a bit more outside perspective because you're answering this as you're answering your problems as a know-it-all who's yes, you've had a lifetime of understanding what advertising is, but you've not had a you certainly haven't had a lifetime or Christ even ten years of understanding how people think, feel, and do. Number two, if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? One would be the word the phrase learnings because it's not it's not a not a real word, uh, and my English student gets very angry whenever I read it. It's lessons, lessons. That's a perfectly good word. Use the word lessons. Now, the other thing I'd, I'd banish would be uh, actually something we touched on earlier, which is I'd banish any brief that, that has that has allocated strategy or creative time of under or, or, of of around two to three hours or under. That 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 is doing a disservice to what we do for clients and and cheapening the agency's output. Yeah, that's a really good one. I also like the idea of banning words. I really want to ban the word factoid because <laughs> we had we had a former client, a big multinational business, and they rebranded with a with a US agency and part of their rebrand was to issue their weekly factoids, which were meant to be like fun facts. It was a bit of a bit of a fluffy, quirky uh, comms piece that they were planning on doing and we pointed out that a factoid is actually a lie that is told so frequently people think it's a fact uh what's the what's the pratchett quote uh, a lie can run around the world uh before the truth has got his boots on yeah exactly that exactly that um number three any books that you would recommend will um so non-fiction i'd recommend the silk road uh, a bit of a broken record on on the silk road but i think it is absolutely brilliant it's a it's a it's a telling of modern hi- or history of, of the last two thousand years but starting in the East rather than starting in the West. So to the point about perspective, I think it's absolutely brilliant. It's come up before a couple of times, actually. It's quite a popular one with our guests. Oh, damn. Okay, well, I'll do a fiction one, which hopefully no one has recommended. Saki's short stories. So Saki was a chap called uh, Hugh Hector Monroe, and he is basically, if you've read Oscar Wilde, you'll love him. It's basically, most of his best writing is a, is sort of very pithy, very, very English short stories that are basically little morality tales. Sometimes they're a bit darkly comic. Sometimes they're schlocky horror. But they have more perspective in a couple of pages than 99.9% of marketing papers you'll ever read, even the award-winning ones. Well, that def- definitely has not come up before. So that one is, yes. uh, is, is a newbie. <laughs> Any others? Uh, well, I'm looking actually at my advertising bookshelf, so I probably shouldn't. God, this is this is locking me into some bad behaviours because I a uh, very specific nerdy one. Uh, I'd, I'd read The Science of Sharing by um, Byron Sharp's lot. I'm actually just thumbing it in front, which is by Karen Nielsen Field. Uh, it's, it's a little bit old now. It's sort of eight years old but it, it explains virality really neatly and is obviously properly evidenced. I'd also read Homegoing, uh, which is uh, the story of, in terms of getting your empathy levels up, uh, it's the story of uh, basically African slaves and the dynasties they went on to create in different countries. And it's told from their perspective, but it interlinks the stories. And obviously what's known, what's true as true could be to one generation is are the old ways to another. But it is fascinating trying to understand, how, I suppose, how cultural diaspora works particularly as someone who's you know probably one of the whitest white people you'll ever meet um it's fascinating yeah that sounds fantastic there's my four i've got four two 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 industry one very industry one non-fiction and two fiction so i hope that's all right (laughs) and then number four will we always dedicate every episode to someone and we bestow or hospital pass that honor depending on your view to our guest who has to give their reason why so would you do the honors Sure. So uh, someone I would recommend who I think absolutely be featured next in your podcast. This is a very talented planner who uh, works for Adam and Eve, who's goes under the radar somewhat on, on Twitter. Her name is Sarah. Uh, she's Sarah Spoon on Twitter. I shan't give her full name just in case I get, I get a clip around me the next time I meet her. She's a fascinatingly sort of provocative and interesting thinker and someone who is probably more well-grounded than almost any planner I'd ever I've ever met we've never worked together but I think she's utterly brilliant and a breath of fresh air oh wonderful that's a great dedication well this is very proudly dedicated to Sarah then we'll, we'll get in touch with Sarah and try and drag her on <laughs> yes good luck on that one but I, ho- I hope you can fantastic amazing um so as a final call to action everyone listening can head over to this episode's listing and all of the links will be shared including the uh getting in and getting on will's advice twitter thread all of the books that will's mentioned how else can people get more will humphrey 
Uh, well, I have a very neglected blog, which is just will humphrey yeah.com. I, I mean, I must be honest with you. The last six years, uh, I've basically done, uh, I've done marriage in fast forward and uh, having two children in fast forward. So uh, hopefully in the next year, I'll be able to write a bit more and moved house and done all those things. So yeah, life has slightly gotten in the way, but there's there's some good stuff in there. There's a lot of dreck, but uh, that that's also where you can find me. And I'm trying to think of other corners of the internet. And I'm also leftywill84 on Instagram, but that's mostly made up with pictures of baby spam. I've become one of those people. So uh... <laughs> baby spam, amazing. Well, thank you for joining us, Will. It's been a real a real pleasure to talk. No, lovely to chat to you, Giles. And uh, yeah, um, hope uh, hope your listeners uh, enjoy this. And uh, if nothing else, they uh, they've got a few good books to be going on with. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure they have. I'm sure they have. Uh, thank you finally to everyone listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share and review the pod, and keep questions and guest requests coming in. To get in touch, it's easy to find Gasp online. You can check out CTA Pod on Instagram or just email hello at calltoaction.co. Yeah, hey, hey.